This morning we're continuing, really in a sense continuing on from where Peter left off last week. Uh, the text for this morning is Mark chapter 9 verses 33 and 37 where the disciples find, well Jesus finds the disciples arguing among themselves. Who is the greatest? And of course this comes off the back of um, the previous uh, activities that uh, that Peter uh, uh, covered last Sunday in Mark chapter 8. You might remember that Jesus and the disciples are touring, if you will, villages surrounding Caesarea Philippi, which is moving into into Gentile territory outside of, outside of Galilee. And there, of course... Um, uh, Jesus says to the disciples, who do the people say that I am? And uh, the response came back, you know, some say John the baptizer, some say Elijah, some say one of the prophets. And then Jesus reflects back to the disciples, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responds, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And of course, Peter Al Peter <laughs> pointed out last week that this really provides a wonderful segue into an evangelistic opportunity if, if we're alert to the opportunity in asking people around us, what do you make of this Jesus fellow? Who do you think Jesus is? Jesus, you'll remember, takes this moment almost like a a moment of triumph, a a cosmic shift in the understanding or the awareness of his disciples, at least the twelve. You are the Christ, you are the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the one whom all of Israel has been looking forward to, has been eagerly anticipating. And of course all of Israel had various pictures or, or understandings in their mind, various expectations of who and what exactly the Messiah would be and and what he would do when he came. And so you can understand, you can be sympathetic to the disciples when their shock and and dismay and disbelief, when Jesus takes that triumphal moment to pronounce, to predict his death. The Son of Man is going up to Jerusalem and the religious establishment there is going to take him and abuse him and murder him. And you'll remember Peter's response. Let it not be so, Lord. That's impossible. That can't be so. And Jesus' reaction, get behind me, Satan. Jesus rebukes Peter. As well-intentioned as Peter was, he finds himself arguing on the wrong side of the fence, as it were, for the wrong cause, as it were. Then there is this important moment important moment, then important moment for us because Jesus takes this opportunity now to give an insight into the proper godly understanding of discipleship. Peter, you, you, you object to the reality that I'm going to offer myself up to die? Well, guess what? If you want to be my disciple, I expect the same of you. I expect no less of you. So it was for the disciples then, so it is today for Jesus' disciples. He called the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if, if any want to become my followers, let them deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it and those who lose their life for my sake and for the sake of the gospel will save it. 
we moved into the narrative of Mark chapter 9 and and here Jesus declares quite plainly and boldly to the people that in their generation the kingdom of God would be established. And of course with the benefit of hindsight we understand that that's exactly what happened in their lifetime with the coming of the Spirit of God Declaring, revealing the will of God, the will of the Father, the will of the Creator, the will of the King, the will of the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. And of course the church, those that responded to and surrendered to the reign of God, constitute the church as it was then, as it continues through to to today. Then we had the Mount of Transfiguration, you may remember where Jesus appears with Elijah and Moses, the great heroes of the Old Testament economy, if you will. Old Testament Israel. Elijah, the great, the great prophet and servant of God. Moses, the great lawgiver. And I would guess that it's intentional that they are lined up alongside of Jesus because in terms of the new covenant, he is the greatest prophet. He is the greatest Lawgiver. In fact, he is the one towards whom all the previous prophets, including Moses, had anticipated and was pointing towards. So this is, this is, this is building to a climactic moment. And of course, at this time, Jesus had privileged, yes, Jesus among the twelve privileged three over the others. He had his special buddies, if you will, Peter, James and John. And he had taken them with him into the mount where he was transfigured, where his glory was revealed. And the father from the heavenlies, just as he had done at the baptism of Jesus, affirmed and declared, this is my beloved son. Hear him. And you almost get the sense that the contrast is being made here by from Elijah and Moses on the one hand, representative of what we would think of as the Old Covenant, the Old Testament covenant that God gave to the Jews, contrasted with my son. This is my beloved son. Hear him. These guys have served their purpose. Now we've arrived at the culmination of what they were all about with the arrival of my son. Then we have this Curious incident. As they come down the mountain, remember it's Jesus, Peter, James and John. They come down the mountain back into areas around Caesarea Philippi and hook up with their disciples and lo and behold there's a fuss going on. And and, and the basis of that fuss is that the disciples, the remaining nine, were unable to exercise a demon from a boy. And so the parent, the father, recognising Jesus, here's the, here's, the, here's the boss. I'll go straight to him and see if he can fix my boy. His underlings can't do it. I'll go straight to the top. And Jesus, it's interesting in the response, Jesus, of course, does heal the boy. He exercises the, 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 uh, the, the child, the boy, exercises the demon out of the boy, if you will, sorry. Um, and, and then he says, in, 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 in explaining to the disciples why they were unsuccessful, he says, it's almost a curious thing, this sort doesn't come out except by prayer 
and in another of the Gospels, except by prayer and fasting. And that's interesting. Uh, and we don't have the time to sort of ex- linger too long with that, except in those, I wonder, I just wonder, if the disciples had become so carried away with the ability that God had granted them to be healing and casting out demons, of course following in Jesus' footsteps, that somehow they'd forgotten that the power ultimately came from God. And so the the need to incorporate God's involvement, the need to depend upon God, and in a sense perhaps even give God the credit expressed in fasting and in praying in connection with the exorcism. Maybe they had let slip that, that it was perhaps a a bit of an indication of they were getting a bit puffed up, a bit overconfident in themselves. And certainly that would fit as we move forward. Mark chapter 9, verses 30 and 32, as we set the immediate stage for the verses, uh, the text that we're focused on this morning. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, He did not want anyone to know it, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is to be betrayed into human hands, and they will kill him, and three days after being killed, he will rise again. So this is the second of three times, three occasions, where Jesus reveals to his disciples, and notice he's taken the twelve aside here. This is private business. This isn't for the broader um, uh, group of disciples, nor is it for the crowd the mob that would have been following along out of for various motives, including just curiosity. This was this was private lesson time. And so it's very, very important. And Jesus almost in confidence shares with his disciples, at this time a reminder, the second reminder, I'm going up to Jerusalem. And it's not good guys, what lies ahead. They're going to take me, they're going to abuse me. They're going to kill me. This time, you remember when they first heard that, Peter, Peter couldn't contain it. He said, oh, that can't possibly be right. Notice the different reaction this time. They did not understand what he was saying and were afraid to ask him. You know, I don't understand. I don't get it, Jesus. I don't, this can't be right. But you know what? Uh, based upon, I remember how you reacted when Jesus, when, uh, sorry, Peter complained. I'm not going to go there, so we'll just keep quiet. But you know what? This is all getting pretty weird. It's getting pretty weird. Now, as we move into our text for this morning, I, I want to um, I want to have you aware that in terms of literary style, there is something significant here. In verse 33, we read they came to Capernaum, so they're moving out of, back out away from that Gentile ter- territory. Uh, Caesarea Philippi, they've come back across uh, to Capernaum, which seems to have become a, a home base for, um, uh, for Jesus and the disciples throughout his, his, uh, much of his Galilean ministry. Uh, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? And then when we skip down to verse 50, salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Easy for us, moderns, uh, English speakers, easy for us to miss it. But for anybody in the first century, reading Greek as Mark wrote in Greek, they would recognise that this is a very specific uh, uh, stylistic form 
And it was called inclusio, and this is what it looks like, and this is the significance of it. Verse 33 is the front end. If you think of bookends, it's the first bookend. It's the front end of the inclusio. Uh, Disciples arguing with one another. Then the back end, the other bookend, if you will, that, that, that sort of pulls them together, like a, like a brackets in a parenthesis, if you will. Verse 50 is the back end of the inclusio. The disciples were to be at peace with one another. And the importance of that is, is that all the material in between, this is what the literary device is signalling to the reader, all of the material in between belongs together. It's, it's part of a one complete package. It belongs to the same theme, life and relationships among Jesus' disciples then and, of course, now. And for that reason, while we're focusing on just a few verses, I'm going to give brief consideration to the surrounding verses to honour the inclusio because it's important for us to understand that these all are connected, they all belong together and they were intended that way by the writer, ultimately by the Spirit of God who was inspiring the writer. So let's give attention now to the text, Mark chapter 9, verses 33 through 37. They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you arguing about on the way? But they were silent, for on the way they had argued with one another who was the greatest. He sat down and called the twelve and said to them, whoever wants to be first must be last and servant of all. Then he took a little child and put it among them, and taking it in his arms, he said to them, Whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me, but the one who sent me. That is, not me only, but also the one who sent me, the Father God. So Capernaum uh, seems to become the home base for uh, Jesus' ministry in Galilee, perhaps, I would say, probably uh, Peter's home. Earlier we, we learned that, uh, remember, Peter's mother-in-law was there with them. They had a home in Capernaum, etc. Um, they were embarrassed and ashamed. Can you imagine what it must have been like for these people? When Jesus could just like that put out in public their private thoughts, you know? How embarrassing. How embarrassing. But we can trust because the Jesus would only do that when it was in their best interests. What were you guys arguing about? And he knows full well. And so they're as embarrassed as all get out. My goodness. The master knows how foolish we are, how, how, how selfish and egocentric we are, how silly we are. Why are you arguing about who's the greatest? And they weren't saying who's the greatest footballer or who's the greatest cricketer of all time. You know, I I would guess I'd be safe in saying Donald Bradman without too much dispute. I'm not sure about the footballer. I guess it depends on what code of footy. Jackie Hume in Tasmania would say, what was it? Gavin Wanganeen. Wanganeen tried to brainwash poor Nathan when he was a kid. Wanganeen. Um... They were arguing about who's the greatest among us as a group, among the disciples. And that's an interesting thing to contemplate from. Where were they coming from? What were they doing? What had prompted that? And and I'd throw out a couple of suggestions. Maybe maybe the rivalry was fuelled by Jesus' privileging Peter, James and John. And maybe a bit of jealousy was getting up there. And maybe Peter, James and John were saying, well, you know, we're obviously more important to Jesus we obviously rank above you guys among Jesus' disciples because Jesus has privileged us so. 
but you would want to be quick to point out to them, as we would want to be quick to remember ourselves today, the greater the privilege, the greater the gift, the greater the responsibility. The greater the responsibility. Maybe that, though, was, was the basis of their arguing. Uh, oh, you're not really, you, you're getting too big for your boots, Peter. Yeah, who knows? Who knows? Um, maybe it had something to do with the failure of the remaining nine apostles to cure the demon-possessed boy. M- maybe Peter, James and John had kind of had a bit of a niggle. These guys are useless. Couldn't even do that. We could do that with our eyes closed. Maybe. Maybe. I don't think this is likely because they, I don't think they had that good a grasp on what Jesus was really meaning when, when he was speaking of his impending death. But, but it's a possibility what if Jesus is talking about his impending death sparked discussion about a succession plan? All right, if we're going to lose the master, we've got to organise, start thinking about who's going to take his place. I don't think that's likely, but, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a possibility, I guess. And of course, here again, we're introduced to another paradox. Remember earlier, we noted that, that, that shocking statement, that shocking truth about discipleship. If you want to be my disciples, you've got to be just like me. And just as I'm going to offer up my life, so that's what will be expected of you. Because after all, if you want to live, if you want life, you've got to be prepared to lose it, to give your life away, to give your life to God. Paradox again. You, and, you guys understand, if you want to be great, go for it. But understand that greatness is expressed and measured in terms of service. It's got nothing to do with privilege. It's got nothing to do with prestige. That's, all, that's the way the world conceives of greatness. But among the people of God, within the kingdom of God, God's way, God's rule, God's economy... It is all about service. Interesting. He takes that moment to bring into the midst of the disciples a child. And we think, isn't that cute? I tried to come up with some cute kids. I reckon they're pretty cute. They're a cute little mischievous bunch, little munchkins. He took a little child and put it among them. And again, as modern Westerners, we're likely to think, oh, cute. Maybe think of our defenceless child, a trusting child, vulnerable perhaps, um, dependent, needy in that, in that way. And so it, it, it pulls at my heartstrings to, to want to sort of take them up and, and protect them. I can pretty confidently say that's not the image that Jesus was intending to portray when he pulled that child into the midst to make his point, to reinforce, illustrate his point. Nor was it the message or the image that his disciples would have gotten. They're more likely to think something along these lines. And this is, these are, this is typical of ancient icons. And I love this stuff. I love it that there were so many believers in the first several centuries that, that, that 
in artistic, stylized form, tried to represent the stories in, in the Gospels. And here we have... Um, I don't know the exact date. I would suspect it's probably around the 3rd or 4th century AD where this scene is represented. You've got the disciples on the on the right, of course, and Jesus in the middle and and the child. And as is typical of artwork of this time, which reflects the culture and the and the values of the time even even during the ministry of Jesus, have you ever noticed that children as they were portrayed then just look like miniature adults? You either think either the kids back then were really ugly or, or there's something else going on here. And, and, it's, and it is, it's the something else option. I'm sure the little kids were just as cute then as they are now. But in representing what a child stood for in that time, in that culture, a miniature adult is, is eminently appropriate to convey the message. And the message would be something like this. Did you notice in the text, New Revised Standard Version quite literally translates it, a neuter word. Did you notice that? Uh, other translations in English soften it somewhat, say him, at least give it some sense of personhood. But it is what is, what is literally conveyed there. Bring a child in and we'll look at it. Let's examine it. That's the sense there. Um, we, we often, even today, less than we used to, but, but still hear it occasionally, children are to be seen but not heard. And think about that. Children are to be seen because children, in terms of this, the family dynamic, uh, building up, usually building, uh, build, like providing for the future dynasty of the, of the, of the, the, the parents, if you will. Children are there to be displayed but not to be heard. They have nothing to say that's worth hearing. They have nothing to contribute and they'll not be given an opportunity to contribute. Now, how countercultural is that to, to today where children are almost to the other extreme, uh, over-represented, over-honoured um, uh, um, in, that, in that sense at the expense, and we always do this in the pendulum swing, at the expense of us poor older folk. I've got a lot of reflections to offer on old age as we grow. And Yarp sitting there thinking, buddy, you know, youngster, you, you don't know anything yet. And, and it's true. That's true. I, and I acknowledge that, Yarp. I know there's a, there's a long and difficult road ahead. But even now, as I'm getting an inkling of what it's like, um, it's, it's, it's hard. And, and so, without getting off on a tangent and getting distracted, um, we, we, got, we find ourselves in this, this pendulum swing where now where youth is honoured rather than maturity and age. Um, but in this time and place, when Jesus pulls that child before the disciples, he's not celebrating the wonders and virtues of youth. He's pulling that child in as an example. Remember what he's just declared to them? You want to be great? This is how you do it. Serve. Serve till it hurts. Serve even the most lowly, useless disciple. You serve him. That's what the child represents. There was no teenager category in those days. 
Children were initiated into adulthood, typically around age 12. It's almost as if you couldn't, couldn't transition uh, a person from a child to an adult quickly enough. In the, in, the case of, in the case of girls, age 12, right, you're eligible to start getting married and having babies. You're eligible to start counting instead of being a liability or worse, being a nothing. As a, as a male, you're initiated, you're ready to start working and start carrying your weight in the village for the family. Now, some of us might sim, you know, sentimentally think, oh, the good old days, the good old days. It's very different today, isn't it? But that's the important point that I'm trying to get across you. Don't think in modern terms. Don't think cuteness. Think thing. This, this lowly nothing, even this, is to be served. He sat down, called the Twelve. Um, you, you probably remember in other contexts, the Sermon on the Mount classically. When a rabbi would sit down and call his disciples, he's signalling to the disciples, this is important stuff. Remember, Luke, uh, Mark's already told us he, he took the disciples aside purposefully to be alone with them, to be able to focus this teaching for them. Now he takes a seat as a rabbi, signalling to the disciples, to the twelve, this is important stuff, pay attention. Whoever wants to be first must be last of all and servant of all, even a child. He took a little child and put it among them and taking it in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me and whoever welcomes me welcomes not me but the one who sent me. Here so our understanding, remember the inclusio, life and relationships among Jesus' disciples. Lesson number one, greatness is expressed in servitude to one another. The unattractive, lowly child represents a disciple of Jesus. Now, this isn't fodder for arguments about baby baptism and such things. Let's not be silly. He's using a child as representing the disciple of Christ who is of the most lowly imaginable status. It's a symbol. It's a sermon illustration. In both Aramaic and Greek, uh, the term child can also mean servant, apparently. Uh, Hurtado uh, makes that point. So there's probably a clever, uh, for the Greek fluent Greek speaker, probably a clever little word play here that they would recognise straight away. The identity notice and the worth of the child lies in its relation to Jesus and the Father. Not in him or herself. And we might think of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 where the Apostle Paul talks about, you remember the body, one body made up of many different, with an emphasis on different members. Some are an eye, some are a hand, etc. And do you, know, do you remember the tail end of that, of that thing, that discussion that, that Paul gives? The more uncomely parts of the body the weaker, the more vulnerable parts of the body, guess what? Deserve all the more, all the greater attention, protection. And in principle, I want to argue that's exactly what Jesus is saying here. In fact, you know what? Paul, unsurprisingly, 
got some of his very, very best stuff from Jesus. You want to be great, then you become a servant and a servant of all. To welcome the disciple of Christ, even the lowliest and the most immature of Jesus' followers, is to welcome Christ himself and to welcome Christ is to welcome the Father. This seems to prompt a question from John about a past incident. might have been the same day, might have been months earlier. We don't know. But this has is, this is sort of made a connection in John's mind, the Apostle John. So he asks this question, who is a follower of you? John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. He was not one of us, one of our circle. But Jesus said, do not stop him, for no one who does a deed of power in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. Whoever is not against us is for us. For truly I tell you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you bear the name of Christ will by no means lose the reward. Now again, we need to be careful to understand this teaching from Jesus in its proper context. And I want to just briefly, you know, we, we could easily spend a whole lesson on this theme, but just in passing, let me just, let me just, I guess, share with you my understanding of what Jesus is talking about here based upon my own experience and observation and struggle sometimes in the world today as, as a disciple of Christ. We've got the family circle. All of us, when we come to thinking who are the people of God and who aren't the people of God, everybody has a circle. Everybody has a line at which when you pass over, you leave that category. Or if you, if you pass over coming the other way, you enter that category. Every, we might have different definitions, but everybody has a circle. It's just that some circles are smaller than other people's circles. But then there's that category that, that you might describe as like family. You know, you know, I can't agree with, with um, some, maybe a lot of what they believe, but I've got to acknowledge their heart, they've got a heart for God. And in their own way, I might consider them to be wrong in error, I might consider them to be crazy, but in their own way, they, they've, they've tried to uh, respond in faith to, to, to God through, through Jesus. Then you've got what I've described as deliberate friends of Jesus. And then I, I, I think of my parents, for example, who, are, who would probably, well, they do. Well, I guess it depends upon the day you talk to them. But the, uh, often they would say, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, Stephen. I'm a good moral person. Um, I, I, I love my neighbour, which is what Jesus requires. And that's enough, isn't it? Does, doesn't that make me a Christian? Well, the answer to that biblically is no, not in and of itself. It's a good, it's a, it's heading in the right direction, but it's not getting over the line of what Scripture means, what Jesus means when He talks about becoming a follower of Christ, becoming a child of God, becoming a Christian. But in our society in Australia today, there are plenty in that category: deliberate friends of Jesus. Then you've got what I've described as accidental friends of Jesus. I remember, you know, a classic example. Um, Going back several years ago, talking to somebody who who considers themselves to be an avowed atheist, 
and I was trying to sort of explore with them the, the, the moral implications of that position. And um, we came around to the question of, of, well, how, as a citizen in, in, in a society, how, how do you operate when it's, if, there's no, if, there's no, if there's no God, uh, there is no sense of um, obligation to fellow human beings as creatures made in the... How, how, do, you, how do you navigate that? Oh, you, it's simple. You just follow rules like, um, oh, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you. And seriously, I about fell off my seat but get this, that person had no idea, not an inkling, best as I can tell, that they were quoting good old Jesus. In their ignorance though, purely by accident, they were friends of Jesus in so much as they were acknowledging, yes, Jesus' teaching is good teaching. Then of course there are those who uh, you would categorise as enemies of Jesus. Those who would scoff at Christianity. Uh, those who would see Christians along with Jesus himself as just a, you know, a, 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 a nothing. And unfortunately, I, I, I suspect that tribe is growing in our society today and growing quite, uh, quite rapidly. Bottom line is this. We need to be grateful for and honour faith and righteousness, whoever it comes from and wherever it is found. That's not to say everybody's a Christian. <laughs> Again, I recognise that that, that that circle is, is very clearly defined. It's not to say anybody who's, 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 who doesn't insult Jesus or even anybody that would claim to be a follower of Jesus is automatically a follower of Jesus. Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount, remember Matthew chapter 7, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, now there's an acknowledgement of Jesus if ever you've heard it. Haven't I done this and that in your name? They're not just, they're not just saying, they're doing Remember what Jesus said? Depart from me. We have no relationship. I don't. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. So don't misunderstand, or certainly don't misapply to use this to justify, as many people do today, that if you just believe in Jesus, that makes you a Christian, and that's all there is to it. Anything else doesn't matter. Scripture doesn't sustain. Jesus Himself does not sustain that sort of thinking, that sort of claim. But this is in connection with life as a disciple. How do we view those who aren't in the circle? Well, we honour wherever and whoever practices righteousness and any semblance of faith in God. Wherever we find that, more than ever perhaps, we ought to treasure that and seek to nurture it, encourage it, honour it and grow it. If any of you put a stumbling block before one of these little ones, so back to the child, remember, he's still working on this sermon illustration. Uh, one of these who believe in me, it would be better for you if a great millstone were hung around your neck and you were thrown into the sea. If your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life maimed than to have two hands and go to hell. 
to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter life lame than to have two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than to have two eyes and to be thrown into hell where their worm will never, never dies and the fire is never quenched. For everyone who will be salted with fire. Salt, and here's the end of the inclusio, remember? Verse 50, salt is good. If salt has lost its saltiness, how can you season it? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace. Don't argue, don't fuss and fight. Be at peace with one another. Be careful how you treat any follower of Christ, even the most defective, the most dysfunctional, the most ignorant of his disciples. Disciples here measured in terms of I see myself as attempting to follow Jesus. Be careful. Be careful how you treat any follower of Christ. Jesus often used figures of speech we call hyperbole. It's scattered throughout the Sermon on the Mount, for example. Uh, Hyperbole is a form of exaggeration. It's not to be taken literally. The point is forcefully made, though, with the assistance, with the emphasis that hyperbole uh, gives in a literary form. Participation in the kingdom of God is worth any sacrifice. Pull out your eye if it's a hindrance. Cut off your hand if it's a hindrance. Whatever it costs, don't let anything stand between you and serving God. The salting with fire uh, represents, uh, I would suggest, the disciples' usefulness for service. In this case, in this context, we think of things like humility, the humility to serve even the most lowly, attained through, dis- <coughs> attained through discipline. That is, the, it is reminiscent, I think, of the salting of the burnt grain offerings in uh, Leviticus chapter two. We we might miss that so easily. But apparently the grain offerings had to be salted. And so while it doesn't mean much to us, the image of grain offering being salted and then passed through the fire in sacrifice to God is probably very familiar to many of Jesus' audience. And that's probably the image that their minds would automatically go to. And so I'd suggest that that's the, the, the summary is the salt here, acceptable sacrifice, which is represented in peace with one another. So in conclusion, by all means, be the greatest, (laughs) be ambitious, but understand what that means in the kingdom of God. Remember that greatness in God's service and economy is expressed and measured in degrees of servitude to one another. If we had more time, I would have liked to have shared a couple of stories from my experience at Suncare. But I want to just perhaps use one as an illustration. Um, with Suncare, my role was very much about supporting carers. And that was a very broad demography. A carer might be somebody who, who'd been married for 60 years and was caring for their husband or their wife of 60 years who who was... Um, struggling with Alzheimer's 
sometimes it was at the other end of the scale. It was a, um, a young carer, uh, that is a young person, even preteen, who carried the bulk of the burden of caring for, say, a parent who might have been afflicted with a, a mental health condition that made it very difficult for them to function in this world. So they needed the support of their, of their child. And of course there were, there were young parents who had children with congenital disabilities. That, that is, they were born with disabilities. In all of those, all of those, the common thread, the common denominator was the caring role. And I can tell you, I was privileged to sit with, because my role in supporting them combined both, um, uh, you know, workshops designed to sort of build resilience, uh, face-to-face counselling, telephone counselling, and very often I would say probably at least at least once a fortnight um, would would have a, a carer so distressed that that we were effectively dealing with with suicidal impulses. Why should I live? Tell me what's worthwhile that I should stick around and continue on this path. And of course, for many of them, they knew that that path, there was no solution. There was no escape. It was a journey that they could either just walk away from. And of course, many of the carers I met were, guess what, single parents because their partner couldn't cope, wouldn't cope. Without judgment, the reality was some people just couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't bring themselves to serve. Couldn't bring themselves to, to, to stay with a, um, a, 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 a lifetime husband or a wife or, or, or even a baby, a child, who, who would get up in the middle of the night and defecate everywhere because they couldn't find the toilet. They'd forgotten where the toilet is. Many, again without judgment. In fact, more often than not, I would sit there with them and I would be judging myself, thinking, and you'll you'll not be comforted by this, (laughs) Donette. Thinking, could I do that? Could I do that for Donette? Could I do that for my kids? I'd like to think I would, but you know what? It's challenging. Challenging just to think about it. But here are people who are doing it. That's where my mind goes when I listen to Jesus' words. Be great, but understand that greatness is measured in service. And service even to the most unworthy, the most insignificant. You serve nonetheless. And so I, I think it's a happy, happy coincidence that the company I worked for for a number of years, Suncare, uh, where we talk about the exercise of agape love, and I think fundamentally that's what it takes to be able to be willing to serve under such extreme conditions, difficult conditions, unconditionally, often sacrificially willing and doing what is in the best interests of the other. That's what Jesus modelled, that's what he calls us to model in following him. A happy coincidence that Sun care sounds a lot like sun care, doesn't it? S-O-N care. 
which again, as people of God, that's what we're called to. The business of son care, S-O-N care, as Messiah's community, a community of love.